He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. James is going to be here a little late. You know, life has grabbed him by the balls and is keeping him from getting to us for, for start time. Uh, but in the meantime, let's hear a little bit from the others to see what's going on on their side. Case. As far as my life, I had another one of those, I can't tell if I'm old or out of touch moments. I got a text from somebody and I was driving, so I just had my car read it. And it said the message and then it finished by saying high five. And when I finally pulled over to read it, I was both incredibly embarrassed and disappointed because every time one of my friends has sent me the two hands up emoji, I thought that was the Wu-Tang sign forever. <laughs> And I thought my friends were so cool for throwing the Wu-Tang at me. And here they're just giving me high fives this whole time. Can it be the same thing? Can it be the Wu-Tang high five? They definitely didn't mean it to be the Wu-Tang sign. I don't know, man. (laughs) Hey, and if Dave Chappelle taught us anything, he taught us that the Wu-Tang clan ain't nothing to F with. This is true. Rigby. Can't say I've had any emoji problems in my life lately, but... (laughs) I know how it feels, Craig. I'm getting older every day, and every so often something happens where you're just like, wow, I I'm, I'm really am getting old. Warren taking a little bit of a hiatus from the pod because he hates us. That's the conclusion I've drawn. Hatus, hiatus, hiatus. Hiatus, hiatus. We're going to keep that. I like it. I'm excited because I am drinking a, it's not a sponsored beer today, but a couple fans of the show gave me a four-pack of this beer from a local Illinois brewery in Oswego called Haze for Horses by the Oswego Brewing Company. And it's delicious. They listen to almost every episode. And she stopped in last week, got some lunch at Yats and brought me a little four pack. Now I want some Yats, Kyle. That sounds awesome. Now you got some hunger pangs. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Morgan and Tim, fans of the show, and for supplying me months since the movie's beer for tonight. And I appreciate you. Very cool. Yeah. But even cooler than that, is our returning guest with us tonight, Dames Marvs. Dames is a project nerd personality on the cult films TV show, CF3. He's a stand-up comic, a trendy asshole, musician, anthropologist, writer, author, fun junkie, and CEO of Lock 22 Productions. Oh. He most recently joined us for the Brian Cranston episode, where he gave us what is now tied for a highest score ever at a 95, because as regular listeners will know... In the Jamie Lee Curtis episode, we had a 95 as well. Welcome back, Dane. Hey, buddy. Welcome back. Welcome back. Good to be here. I'm still coming to terms living in a world where people don't believe that Alec Baldwin could kill somebody. <laughs> yeah, a rough week for uh, prop guns, huh? Yeah. It's the emoji for accidentally shot someone. Uh, an Alec Baldwin face. That's what that's what's going to be now. <laughs> Two hands up. <laughs> yeah, the two hands up. High five here. Um, <laughs> since the last time we had you, there's been a lot of changes in the CF3 world. Can you talk oh, to yeah. our listeners a little bit about everything that's kind of 
this whole project nerd side that was wasn't a thing last time we had you. Oh, and I believe that we were still a podcast, so we mm-hmm. uh, were talking about switching to television format, which we did as soon as we did that. The guys at Project Nerd said we want you to come on and be our flagship show as we switch from a podcast network to a YouTube television network. And most recently, they just announced last week that they're moving away from YouTube platform to an over-the-top application platform that you'll be able to have on your television, Roku. I believe it's going to be Roku, Fire Stick, and Samsung out of the gate. That's awesome. Very cool, man. The 10-year anniversary of Project Nerd is in March, so we're all ramping up. We're in pre-production right now. The Dames Marv show, which should be on Project Nerd, it's not 100% solidified, but also the new season of CF3. We've got some really cool guests coming up for that. So, yeah. Exciting times. I will tell you guys this, and and your listeners, like, kind of like a casting director for a lot of their shows on their network, too. So if there's something that you see on Project Nerd that you're like, oh, I could totally be on that show, or you should be on that show, let me know, and I will... Uh, some strings. All right, we've got some birthdays for this episode releasing on November 4th, and let's see what Rigby's got. All right, uh, first one is a very familiar name, Mr. Matthew McConaughey. Ooh. Dallas Buyers Club, Interstellar, Angels in the Outfield, any, any rom-com from the early 2000s, you name it. <laughs> Professor at University of Texas. Right, teaching film. Possibly the next governor of Texas as well. What right. are your guys' guesses for our boy Matthew McConaughey? 58. He's older than you think. I'm going to guess 62. I, I'll split it, 60. Man, you guys are way off. He's turning 52. He's not that old. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> my bad my bad he's a little too good looking to be 62 come on now this next one might be a little easier because his biggest role came when he was a teenager so mr karate kid himself ralph macchio i'm gonna say 59 59 59 53 give me 56 uh ralph macchio is turning 60 on oh damn november 4th so dame's original uh, yeah that's right and last but not least, Kathy Griffin, comedian. Haven't really seen her much lately, ever since the Trump thing. But <laughs> I've always thought she's funny, so she's working her way back to the spotlight, hopefully. How old is uh, how old's Kathy Griffin turning on November 4th? I feel like they're all around the same age at this point. Yeah, I think she's 60. I think she's 60, 60 right now. And 54. Well, that's way off. Give me 63. So Dames wins again. She's turning 61, and he was right. She is 60 right now, and she'll be 61 on November 4th. Two for three tonight, Dames. What do you have to say for yourself? I smoked you guys last time, too. (laughs) We like that, though. You know? Happy birthday to all those humans. As we get into this episode, the five actors that we threw onto the wheel for episode 48, which this is, were... Alexandra Daddario, the one that James was like, why is she even on this list comparatively to the other four? Well, she was on the list, James. I was like, never even heard of him. Wasn't it the second time she's been on the list? It is, yes. It's not her first go-round on the list here. Yeah. But the other four was their first time. Sissy Spacek, 
Sigourney Weaver, Ray McKinnon, but doesn't really matter because the wheel did not select any of those four. It selected Daryl Hannah with one R. Daryl has n almost 100 credits on a resume, 98 to be exact, almost entirely film. There's a couple shows here and there, but again, very cinema. We'll talk about the quality of the cinema as we get into the conversation today. And that also includes 12 TV movies along the way. Probably some others that should have been TV movies. Preview. Hint. Case, go ahead and drop us the box office snapshot. When I started punching in the numbers for Daryl Hannah, I kind of had an idea where things were going. Spoiler alert, I was right. So let me go through those numbers. <laughs> the first thing that did jump out to me while preparing her numbers was that a lot of her movies... They omitted the budgets. They didn't report budgets. Similar to Kyle's observation in other episodes where movies are really bad at production companies, don't, don't want to have them available for streaming. Same thing holds true on these. So most of the time, those movies ended up losing money. Of the 34 films that I have box office information for, 10 of them are missing the budgets. That's a lot of movies compared to other actors. The last episode, we featured the lowest average film budget for Jamie Lee Curtis. It's only fitting that we follow up with the second lowest average film budget. Jamie Lee Curtis had an average film budget of $18.4 million, and Daryl Hannah comes in second lowest at an average of $21.7 million. Again, this might actually have been the lowest if we had more of her budgets, because I have a feeling... Of the 10 movies I, I was missing, <laughs> they would have been lower than $20 million. Daryl Hannah falls into the category of having more box office struggles than successes. A lot of our performers usually have a few flops, a few box office hits, and then most of their career is right in the middle. Of the 24 films that we do have budgets on, 12 of them lost money. Our biggest box office successes are Splash, which we'll talk about later, Steel Magnolias, and the two Kill Bill movies. In our metrics, she comes in 47th for average film budget, 33 in star meter, 40 in critic ranking, 36 in fan ranking, 34 and 29 in two different box office metrics, putting her 44th overall. Okay. Just behind Gabriel Byrne and Renee Russo, and then ahead of Seth Green, Christina Applegate, Chris Rock, and David Spade. Interesting. I had a feeling it was going to be super low because we'll get into it. Anything past like the year 2004, she's got movies that have literally like 2.3 out of 10s on IMDb. <laughs> like they're just really like we haven't seen these numbers since Danny Trejo. Yeah. So the, none of that surprises me. So 44 out of 48. Well, we'll see how the Munson meter lines up. So first feature film that we're going to use is in 1981 for Daryl Hannah. So everything before 1981. There's a lot, right? Just like any performer that we cover, you know, the early life is fascinating, but the, the big stuff that at least I could find, she's from Chi-Town, she's from Chicago, Midwest gal. She suffered from insomnia at a young age, which, okay, that's new. I haven't, haven't covered that one. And we'll talk about some mental health challenges and other things that she's dealt with her entire life. As we get into things, she had an autism diagnosis and moved to Jamaica when she was young, too. She studied ballet and acting at USC, and that's kind of what led her into the world of acting. But her first film ever was in 1978's The Fury, a De Palma film. She plays a character named Pam. 
I've watched The Fury. She's, it's a very small role. I like De Palma a lot, and I, this is one one of his movies on his filmography that I, that I still haven't seen, unfortunately. It's not typical De Palma. I'll tell. I'll say that. I don't know if it's because it was early. You know how like Tarantino has a style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I viewed De Palma, and this one just doesn't fit in that. This would be like if Tarantino did Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. <laughs> Tiffany. It's got a cool premise to it. Like it's rated well by critics. Um, I enjoyed it. It's yeah. about psychics and telekinesis and family squabbles and things like that. It's not a bad film. It's her role's very very tiny in it. A couple years later, her next project was in Hard Country. She played Loretta, Kim Basinger's sister in that movie. Had the the southern drawl going. Another small role, not huge. Um, But what we're going to call her first feature film is the 1981 slasher thriller, The Final Terror. And Rigby's going to talk about it. Yeah, so Final Terror, as you mentioned, Kyle, is a 1981 slasher film. Starring a young, mostly inexperienced cast who would, not all, but most would become notable names in Hollywood. Daryl Hannah, Joe Pantoliano, Rachel Ward, and Mark Metcalf, who had starred three years previously as Niedermeyer in Animal House. The movie and its plot are very familiar and simple. A group of young campers in the woods. A scary bonfire story about something bad that happened in the surrounding area. And a mysterious, perhaps supernatural unseen killer that picks off the campers one by one. Daryl Hannah stars as Wendy, and although she doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the or screen time in the, in the film, she does play one of the lead roles. Despite being filmed in 1981, the film could not find a distributor and wasn't released to the public until 1983. The distributors of the movie realized that the rising stardom, which we'll get to, of Daryl Hannah and Adrian Zamed, another actor in the film, who, after this was in Greece too, they gained a following from the release of their movies after this, and so they released it in 1983. Also, interestingly enough, the film was shot and directed by Andrew Davis, who would go on to direct notable Hollywood action blockbusters such as The Fugitive and Under Siege. The film is extremely low budget, and I didn't think it was really all that good. It's it's kind of playing off the tropes that you see in Friday the 13th with the story of a deranged kid who plays a dangerous role in a community and is looking to kill people, as well as a evil mother who also plays a role in this, similar to Friday the 13th, the, the, the original, the 1980 version. Watching the film, I guess I could see why it was not picked up for distribution shortly after they shot it. That being said, it has established cult status over the years even though it's very cliche-riddled from what we know of successful horror movies over the last 40 years. I think it's safe to say that the cult status comes from the actors, the young, inexperienced actors in the movie who became stars after in the 20 to 30 years later, like Joe, Pan- like Joe Pantoliano, like Daryl Hannah. You know, it's... I wouldn't... I, I, didn't, I didn't hate it, but it's definitely one of those movies that I would watch once and, and be happy about and just never really have to never really have to pick up again. There's a reason that this is not listed among the classic 80 slasher films. Decent watch, but I think it was it is what it is. It's a low budget, just sort of kind of cheesy, scary movie from the early eighties. One Rigby, it's Joey Pants. That's his real name. Joey so Pants. Yeah. Correct yourself there. Two, you're wrong. This movie's awesome. Maybe it has something to do with me. Maybe it has to do with the quality of her filmography. But this is one of the movies I enjoyed the most. Especially, spoiler alert, when they basically use the guy's tactics against him and, and stick a spike right through him at the end. I was like, that's the payoff I came here for. Let's go. 
These kids figure it out. You got to beat him at his own game by playing his own game. And I know it's been done before, but I liked it. Yeah, I admired the I admired the payoff. I, I'll I'll agree with you there. But it was just really, you could tell they did it on a shoestring budget, which you know I get, but it didn't make it any more enjoyable. That's for sure. And she really doesn't have a lot of dialogue in this either. No, Daryl. it's an ensemble cast. A lot of it is just you know playing the the scared reactionary girl to the to the killer out in the woods basically but it is her biggest role to this point in her life for sure do you guys think they were chasing any of the elements of halloween with this they have to i mean any of any genre movie that was making money at that time is the reason this movie exists i think it's more i think it's more friday 13th than halloween but there's too many of them alive at the end to be too much of a halloween comparison yeah hey getting work that's what you got to do early in your career. Get the work. She did more in that movie than we did. That's true. More than I'll ever have on my IMDb. That is for sure. Unless Dames picks me up for his Dames Marv show three years from now. You never know. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're still going on in three years and you haven't been on. Like That's a real problem. You or, just know that I hate or you. Or I'm just going to take the message. Yeah, I'll just, just take the message. That, okay, just know that I hate you at that point. <laughs> like, <laughs> the early career of Daryl Hannah is littered with a lot of her reviews. A couple movies we'll talk about before we get to the next review. We've got Summer Lovers, 82, and then her character is Pris. An important role, but a, not much screen time in Blade Runner. Yeah, this is a small role. Obviously, it's a it's a epic movie that's sort of a one of the landmarks in science fiction movies from, from the eighties. I, th- I feel like movies like this tilt the scale for actors like her. Cause you know, the movie didn't do what it did because of her, but her scores and whatnot are doing be- what they're doing because of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Does she have any dialogue in this? I don't really remember. Very limited. Yeah. I mean, technically we had this at her as originally her first feature film, but knowing that it took two years to produce the final terror. It was like that one's a little, she played a bigger role in the story. And you actually get to see some of her chops comparatively. This is more physical acting than anything else, which is nothing wrong with her dating life. The first we'll, we'll mention a few notables, but the first notable is in the 83, a year after Blade Runner, she starts dating Jackson Brown. Yeah. Infamous. I love it. Musician Jackson Brown. With a, he's got some tunes. Yeah, this is when he was at his, like, in his prime, too. Early 80s, for sure. Oh, yeah. This was, like, Fast Times of Ridgemont High style with somebody's baby and all that. Which he, a couple years later, was in his music video with Clarence Clemens, your friend of mine. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. He was Springsteen's saxophone player. Uh, okay. Yep. But let's dig into largest audience gap, which is 1984's Reckless, and Dames has this one. We've all... I mean, not all, but I don't know your stories, but we've all lived in a one industry town, have we not? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe. I think about the town I grew up in, and there wasn't even one industry. So I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there was, I mean, there was a mill, but it wasn't a steel mill, and it was shut down way before anybody. I was going to meet the love of my life, end up paired with her in a dance. I mean, it may or may not have happened. And I, my, it I, feels I, like you're talking about the, the plot of Reckless. That's what I'm hearing. Oh, God damn it. That's what I'm supposed to be talking about, I guess. Oh, oh weird. 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 Weird how I thought, that's it, I some thought guy's this was story. all the right moves that you were talking about with Tom Cruise. My bad. I mean, I thought it was Footloose. Yeah. It could be uh, any one of those 80s genre 
And um, that's the point. Boy meets girl, yeah. And I think you, this movie was $3 million that made money. It actually is one of the ones that made money. I think you could have spent another $3 million on it, and it wouldn't have been any better or any worse. So <laughs> I really honestly don't know what to think. You you mentioned it in a chat to me. You're like, oh, I don't really know what to think about this one, but uh, I'm, I'm happy about any movie that ends with, uh, what was the song? It uh, has. It's a Seeger song. Roll oh, me so away. Yeah. Is the, the oh, 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 yeah. oh, great roll song. Roll me away. Gonna roll me away. I love that song. I don't know if it was the end of the movie, or the hearing that song that made me happier. <laughs> hey, and and Seeger is pretty stingy with his licensing. The fact that they got this in that movie is pretty impressive. You're saying, Dames, that on the seventy to zero, that's the gap. 70 for audience, zero for critics. Do you fall on the critic side? Is that what I'm hearing? I do. I, I fall heavily on the critic side because you know, it is basically my story. <laughs> uh, Aiden Quinn, I am not. My view. Uh, yeah, I, I just, it's a pile of garbage. She's a high school student in this? Yep. Cheerleader, yeah. Yep, she's a cheerleader. Dames, are you more the cheerleader or the biker guy? If this was your story. I was a jock. That was not really... <laughs> nowhere to bike i lived in a canyon dude like a fucking mountain and a mountain and a river there's no there's one road basically i did see the scene in this movie where he faking like he was going to ride his motorcycle off the cliff yep he does it a couple times okay so that was me at the swimming hole and i was gonna jump, <laughs> jump off the cliff is this a biopic is that what yeah, i'm hearing yeah. I mean, this is a, very poorly done is, they paid for the rights to tell your story, right? I hope so. <laughs> Very poorly done. So everybody knows the the quick synopsis on this is a motorbike riding loner rebel. That's that's a mouthful. A motorbike riding loner rebel on the high school football team, which is a contradiction. Those things don't usually have. It's not you know. It's usually like that's the where anti. I get my my parallel. There, there it, it is. Sounds like the program. He wins a date with a cute, rich cheerleader at the high school dance. Her boyfriend's behavior leads to a breakup. You know, typical story of young girl who isn't supposed to fall for the rebel types, but does instead of the other football player played by Adam Baldwin. Nice. He didn't shoot anybody. Are we sure that's not not another teen movie, Kyle? Uh, <laughs> sounds like it, right? <laughs> Built from that. Dan Hadai is in it, too, and that's cool. The final scene before Bob Seger queues up, Aiden Quinn gets into a fight with Adam Baldwin in the science lab, and then his bike is just conveniently sitting in the hallway, and he gives her the, like, are you with me or against me? And she gets on the bike, and that's Roll Me Away by Bob Seger. That ending makes it worth it, it sounds like. It sounds like a good movie. I didn't hate it. There are worse movies that we watched. Oh, for sure. I mean, you don't watch... It's not Storm every day Seger's that you watch... Terrible your own story and hate it. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and she plays the lead. She's the female lead in this. I, I, she does it capably. She plays that trope perfectly fine. It's just kind of a nothing sandwich of a movie in a lot of ways. As a 22 or 23 year old at this time, she pulls off the high school student. She looks pretty young and naive and innocent. Although she might be 23, 24. I feel like her face looks like 17 most of the time. Okay. Look at any fucking yearbook from like 1958 to like 1980. Any yearbook, those people in there look like they're 50 years 
That's true. That's true. It's the hair. It's the hair. It's the fucking hair, man. And the glass, the bottle cap glasses, man. Yeah, outfit. I mean, Christ. Anything you else do want to add, Dames? About Reckless? Adam Baldwin did not shoot anybody during the making of that movie. That's unfortunate. That would have spiced it up a little bit. Too bad. 70 to 0 audience gap. It's one of the biggest ones we've ever had. Granted, there were only like a handful of critic reviews, but it's hard to ignore a 70 point gap like that. Early on, just doing all sorts of things, including highest critic score the same year. We've got Reckless on the front end of the year and towards the back end of the year. She's in one of her bigger movies, Splash. She plays the character Madison. And Case is going to talk about it. Splash is a 1984 romantic comedy starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah. This is one of Ron Howard's early directorial projects and the second collaboration that he had with Brian Grazier. Following the success of this movie, Grazier and Howard would go on to form Imagine Film Entertainment, and they associated this movie as the start of that company. Pretty cool to know that this movie is what the genesis of that company and that that partnership was. Splash is a very charming, well-paced, and entertaining rom-com, which basically has Tom Hanks playing a character named Alan, who falls in love with a mermaid. Normally, when we use the phrase, fish out of water... We're talking about figurative things. In this case, it is a literal phrase. She is a fish out of water. And basically half the movie is, it's like her trying to navigate being an outsider in New York City. And then the other half of it is her and Tom Hanks forming a relationship. It's a relationship that goes back to when he was a little kid. Dove off of a a boat in uh, Cape Cod. And apparently there's mermaids in Cape Cod. And it's a very exciting discovery. A true story. Everybody knows that. Having not seen this movie in decades, it struck me on the rewatch that this must have been a very difficult role for Daryl Hannah to play. She was said to have had body issues during the filming of this, which makes it tough since about a quarter of the movie, she's in mermaid mode. Next, on scenes where she had her fin on, she needed help getting in and out of water since her legs were bound together and they couldn't easily take off or put on the fin. So she just had to sit there. And while all the other actors got to hang out and relax and take five, as they say, she was literally in character sitting out. The cast of this movie is great, especially for this time period. And you forget how energetic and captivating Tom Hanks was at at this point of his career. Really good comedic timing, pretty good range, really, for what, you know, what we know of him. Certainly there's some oddities that come along with this story of Tom Hanks, a human, falling in love with Daryl Hannah, a mermaid, and having a lot of sexual relations. Yeah, he's such a horny, horny, horny fucking mermaid. Daryl Hannah is awesome in this movie. Interestingly enough, I remember that Roger Ebert had an issue, I believe, he thought that the biggest problem with the movie was that Tom Hanks and John Candy should have had their roles reversed. He thought that John Candy would have been the better love interest in the movie, and Tom Hanks would have played the creepy brother, which mm. is interesting. Interesting. It's just because he was a fat piece of shit. Because it's more improbable that a mermaid <laughs> yeah. would fall for him. Yeah, he wanted that dream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kyle, you aren't going to believe this one, then. This movie is also my story. <laughs> you almost drowned in Cape Cod. Exclusively scotch taped to penthouses when I was growing up. 
<laughs> that's neither here nor there, guys. Yeah, this is this role launched her to superstardom. I think I think that's the uh, the idea behind there. Yeah, not superstardom, but it made her a made her a household name in Hollywood for sure. Yeah, well, for sure. And there's some trivia on that. Let me share some of these. Ron Howard turned down directing two pretty big films. He turned down Mr. Mom and Footloose. Hmm. Brian Grazier and Ron Howard rushed this project to beat a Warren Beatty Murbane themed movie. Daryl Hannah's fin weighed over 35 pounds. Standard. She couldn't eat lobster during the lobster scene because she's a vegan. So Ron Howard had to run into the kitchen and replace all the lobster meat with mashed potatoes and hearts of palm. <laughs> the one where she bit through it? Yeah. It helped on the budget, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it did. Here's an important Munson's at the movie trivia. Several actresses turned down this role also. The best one as it relates to this podcast is that Jodie Foster auditioned and turned down this role to take what movie? Not The Accused, right? No. Jodie Foster turned down Splash so she could participate in the project named Hotel New Hampshire. Oh, oh yes, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Dork. One of the most bonkers movies we've ever covered. <laughs> Fucking bananas, man. Here's my favorite one. It is widely believed... That this movie was the genesis for parents naming their daughters Madison. Before this movie, Madison was the 216th most popular name for girls. Soon after the movie came out, rose to 29th. And by the year 2000, it was the third most popular name for girls. I thought that was an interesting fact. And the first time I read that, I was like, that can't be. And then I did a search for Daryl Hannah Splash Madison. And at least five or six different articles gave data about how the name Madison rose to prominence after this movie. I enjoyed this movie, and it was a fun rewatch for this episode. Flash it up. Well, the other movie that contended for highest critic score was her role as Diane in The Pope of Greenwich Village. Smaller role, alongside a Mickey Rourke that I did not recognize at all. (laughs) It's wild. Before his face got all cut up. I like the Pope of Greenwich Village a lot. She's his girlfriend. She yes. ends up leaving him because of his brother. Right. Who's played by Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts. Yeah. Yep. yeah. She's in probably about half the movie. And, uh, and she's, she's playing a pretty serious role. And I mean, it's one of Mickey Rourke's big movies that, you know, turned him into a star in the 80s, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good film. I know I texted the group about this, but Danny Trejo is one of the like busier guys you'll cover. Oh man, Eric Roberts' filmography oh. makes Danny Trejo look lazy. Oh yeah, bro, like Trejo's four hundred. Eric Roberts has six hundred and forty-two credits, bro. And he's got a thick head of hair in this movie. That's an impressive hair he's got. Eric Roberts. Eric Roberts is pretty. I mean, he's a super neurotic character in the movie. Dude, every movie he's in, he's super neurotic. Uh, yeah, I haven't watched much of his six forty-two. <laughs> He's just like a drug addict, like crazy guy in every movie he's in. Like Trejo, if you find a a path to be successful. A niche, yeah. Go for it. One nomination ever. Not even from like critic circles anywhere. That's it, man. Not even Razzie's. 142 movies, exactly. Well, Daryl has Razzie's and we'll get into that. She seems further along in, in her acting abilities in Splash than she does in this. And so I bet you this movie was made... Sat for a little bit until it caught some some production companies, and then and then they went with it. And after that, I mean, it's an iconic film from the '80s. Well, speaking of iconic movies from the '80s, maybe 
she played Ayla in The Clan of the Cave Bear, a movie that I rented for $2 on Prime today. It's my last Daryl Hannah movie that I watched. <laughs> you did it, buddy. Yeah, right? I did it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a story about Cro-Magnons who come onto the scene, and she plays a Cro-Magnon female who is adopted by a group of Neanderthals and a little blonde girl challenging the Neanderthal way of life at a pivotal time when Neanderthals were eventually wiped out. The reason I wanted to watch this because we covered Jamie Lee Curtis last time and in the show Scream Queens, which I watched the f- whole first season, at one point they played a joke on one of the characters where uh, Emma Roberts pretended like her her kink was to have this guy dress up as Daryl Hannah from Clan of the Cave Bear. And then they just all came out of nowhere and started making fun of him. And I was like, that's such a weird reference to make. That's a weird So reference. I was like, I gotta watch this movie, man. And she's, I'll tell you what, as a movie, there's not a lot of dialogue because they've got their own little unique, like, physical language that they're doing and you know, they're making stuff up. But she has to do a lot of different stuff in this movie. I'll say that. And it, it's all eyes on her after about the first 30 minutes or so. It's not a great movie, but she had put in the work. I will say, Crow Magna's not big on women's rights. <laughs> no. She's actually pretty good in, in some of these physical roles. Mm-hmm. In Popa Greenwich Village, she's doing a lot of, she's doing, there's a scene where she's working out and doing some boxing and doing some dancing. And then she's obviously does a ton of swimming and splash. I don't know if she played any football in Reckless, but. She's on a pretty good path here doing a lot of physical roles. No, no football and reckless unless Dames can recall that. I don't remember that. 86 as well. She's Chelsea in Legal Eagles, a movie case reference last time when we talked about Daryl Hannah. The movie with Jamie Lee Curtis named Blue Steel was not the genesis of Derek Zoolander's look of Blue Steel. Blue Steel actually came from a scene in Legal Eagles. I believe it was Daryl Hannah made a face at somebody walking down the street. And that's where Ben Stiller got the idea that that would be his blue steel look in (laughs) Zoolander. (laughs) So it lives on in infamy, has some pop culture significance. At this point, this was her by far and away her largest budgeted movie because of starring with Robert Redford and Deborah Wingers in it. What's wild is we are about to get to our fourth review and we are only one, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen rolls into her career. Wow. So like most of this stuff is all right on the front end, right out the gate. That's crazy. All right. So next up, another review. We've got largest critic gap, and it is 87's Roxanne, and James is gonna talk about it. So when I got this, I was actually pretty excited to watch it because I have always had a special place in my heart for Steve Martin. All I knew about it going into watching it is, isn't that the movie where he has a big nose? And that's all I knew. And I knew nothing else. And it just looked like a movie I wouldn't enjoy because it felt like a prop for prop's sake to uh, steal a line from Ocean's Eleven. But I watched the movie and the quick plot synopsis is, it's actually a modern take on Sir Edmund, is it Roastens? I don't know. I don't know classical playwrights names that well play called Serrano de Bergerac. I don't know. It's probably French. I think I put a German accent on it. But if you watch this movie, you would kind of get the idea because this story itself is so famous that it's been remade many times. And the way this movie actually got into production was Steve Martin saw the play and was blown away by the play and said, I just need to make a modern, like 
I am so impressed by this main character who is this like alpha male, witty, charming, uh, like head police officer. He's a tough guy. He just randomly beats the shit out of people the whole movie. And at no point until well into the story, do they acknowledge that he has a massive honker for a nose. And so as I was watching the movie, I was like, are they never going to address this nose? Like it is, it's clearly a thing. And the movie is about this man who essentially has it all minus this one flaw that makes him wildly insecure around women who meets a woman who is played by Daryl Hannah named Roxanne, who is just everything he looks for. She's intelligent. She's strikingly attractive. She doesn't re- she's not really into the things that he's not into. And so they're like, wow, we could really bond. The only issue is the young, hot Daryl Hannah is attracted to Steve Martin's young, hot new firefighter that he just hired. Cause he's the head up of the fire department. And so what happens, and I think you guys have heard this story before, even if you're listening right now is Steve Martin starts writing letters for the firefighter. Who's this strikingly attractive man who has no game whatsoever. And eventually Roxanne falls for Steve Martin, but she thinks it's the hot dude. So he's the one who stands outside her window and says all the sweet things. I think I've seen this play in like, Hey Arnold reenacted it or like the Rugrats or something. I feel like I've seen this story arc play out before minus the schnoz. I never knew that this gigantic nose was tied to this entire story. But when I was watching this movie, I, I got a lot of the same Steve Martin vibes where initially I wanted to hate it because I'm like, ah, it's it's whimsical, but it's kind of corny. And there's just enough gags in it. And Steve Martin is just, so, his timing is so perfect that he can make even these corny things entertaining to someone who is you know, got their arms folded and is looking to not enjoy the movie like I was. But I actually, I I was thinking about tweeting out and spoiling that I was watching it and saying like, is Roxanne good? Like, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't love it, but like, it's not bad. And so then when I looked at the audience score, I think that's right on the money. I think it's a 63. I think they gave it an 88 because that is when Steve Martin was at his absolute prime, like peak prime. And he wrote this movie and you, you can't really say bad things about it. So what they said was nothing but good things about it. Daryl Hannah in this movie is very much just a, I don't know. It's kind of stereotypical. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm a hot girl, but I'm not a normal hot girl. I'm also smart. And I'm like, Oh cool. The eighties were just really tough for stereotypes like that. Cause like, that's all that her character is. She's so easily confused by Steve Martin standing behind a bush. Like, the other guys, the firefighters jacked. Steve Martin's an old man. And like, it's like the voices don't sound alike, but he's covering his face. And she's like, wow, that firefighter is brilliant, man. And she just never puts it together. But I think I've, I kind of share my thoughts on Daryl Hannah and the rest. I just, I'm, I don't think she really does much in this role. This movie really is just to showcase just like how likable Steve Martin is and see how many witty jokes he could put in and how many kind of zany situations he could get into. If you watch it, you're not going to be mad, but your grandma or like a little kid around you will probably like it more than you actually will. The play is based on a real person. So that dude must've just had like, as someone who has a big nose, 
that must have been a remarkable honker. <laughs> <laughs> one interesting thing here is you've got arguably one of the most popular comedic forces of the time and one of the most popular leading female actresses of the time, which is a wild, it's a pretty wild connection. Mm -hmm. This is about the time where she's at her biggest, right, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, she's peak here in the mid to late 80s. I think Roxanne is like a perfect example of the type of role that Daryl was taking on at the time of, it's, it's not a stretch, it's very comfortable for her. It's not asking of anything dramatically different than what she normally does. And no. but it works, right? Like it's yeah. it's a formula. She fills the formula of playing like the nice, innocent, pretty girl, and she does the job. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think after watching this and then Splash, I was just like, she doesn't do a lot of talking in her movies. There's not a ton. And even Blade Runner, there's really no talking in that one either. Not heavy drama roles, that's for sure. All right. So speaking of Wall Street. She gets her one Razzie victory for her character as Darian in Wall Street in 87. What? She won a Razzie for this? She did. Yeah. She won a Razzie. What was the category? A worst supporting actress, I believe. Wow. Her worst lead actress, one of the two. I didn't think she was, I mean, this is one, well, this is one of my favorite movies. Definitely my favorite Oliver Stone movie. But I didn't think she was, her acting was bad. I mean, she's a, no. she plays a wealthy Upper East Side interior designer who Charlie Sheen falls in love with. and. You know, she ends up obviously being a a little too close for comfort with Michael Douglas or in Gordon Gecko, but yeah, I thought her performance was good in this. That's that's shocking to me because Douglas won the Oscar for Best Actor, and yeah, she won she won the Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress. Interesting. She's gorgeous in this movie. I'll say that. What a dichotomy. I'll tell you what, it's pretty impressive for her to be. I think she was third build in this movie, right? Yeah, she would have been for her to be third bill in this movie. People still quote this movie. Absolutely. And so at this point, I mean, she's got to be, she's just on top of the world in, in terms of actresses in Hollywood. Well, speaking of Razzies, she was nominated for another one the next year for her role as Mary in High Spirits. Massive cast with all of the, all these really cool actors. Peter O'Toole, Steve Gutenberg plays the other main role alongside Daryl Hannah. And he's massive at this time. I mean, yes. because of Police Academy. The goot is huge. Peter Gallagher, Beverly D'Angelo, Martin Ferrero. I mean, it's like a lot of 80s actors like doing their thing. It's not very good, but the hilarious part is the movie was nominated for one award. And the one award was Daryl Hannah for Razzie for Worst Lead Actress. God damn it. <laughs> Dude, I didn't know this about her. That's too bad. So she's got back-to-back Razzies, Razzie noms. Yeah, she won the first one and then didn't win the second one. Liam Neeson's in this, too. He plays the other ghost alongside her. And Liam Neeson's really, he's really funny in his role. He kills her every night in the movie. And Gutenberg's kind of like the new love interest who comes in the in the door. But I think it's because she has a, a pretty bad Irish accent in the movie. It's pretty rough. And I think that's probably the reason she was nominated for it. Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio does a shitty accent. He gets an Oscar. And she gets a fucking Razzie. Fuck. <laughs> but that's high spirits. It's like a ghost story. Peter O'Toole runs the hotel and he's trying to like create fake ghosts. But it turns out Liam Neeson and Daryl Hannah actually haunt the place and along with others. And it's all the hijinks that come with it. So it's a fun, stupid movie um, that's available uh, on YouTube. If people want to check it out. 89. She has an uncredited role in Crimes and Misdemeanors. This character named Lisa, a crossover with Angelica Houston. Not the first time we're going to mention Angelica Houston in this episode. 
And then that same year, one of her other biggest movies, she plays Anel in Steel Magnolias. Yeah, she's like the intro character in here, and she's she's new in town. Um, she's like a nerdy, awkward character in this, which is a lot different than than what she had played before. She's played like the either it's like the the pinup girl or like the high school cheerleader prom queen type character. This is a little bit different for her. What's hilarious is she almost didn't get this role because the director thought she was too pretty for this type of character. But then she, when she came into audition. She came in dressed like the character and went all in on just looking nerdy and boring and they hired her. Interesting. Dude, the, the cast in this movie is so crazy. It's great. Sally Field, Olympia Dukakis. I'm trying to think of who else is in it. Julia Roberts, Shirley MacLaine. Dolly Parton, Julia Roberts. Like, talk about a strong female ensemble cast. Holy shit. I mean, I mm-hmm. can't think of a I can't think of a stronger one at any moment than this one. Well, I think there were four, four or five Oscar nominees. Oh yeah, Shirley MacLaine too. You're right. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun little cast, man. Really good. A lot of star power in this one. A year later, she's in Crazy People, a movie that I think Case referenced last time. She plays a character named Kathy, and let me tell you, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that hammered home its theme so fucking hard, then saying yes. you have to be crazy to do honest marketing. So we're gonna make the insane asylum people be the marketers. Did not get very far into this movie. No, he didn't finish it. I did not. You tell me you don't drive. You don't drive a Jaguar. I mean, <laughs> this is not my story, <laughs> dude. Me and my buddy Johnny Beaudry, we watched this movie so many times when we were kids. It was just hilarious how, like you said, Kyle, that honest marketing—you'd have to be a crazy person—and just the the shit they would come up with. It was really, really funny. We <laughs> laughed at that at any time. Anytime we would see those products, or we again, the Jaguar one was the one we would reference the most. And she plays a lovely mental patient who is right on the like verge of finally leaving and getting herself together. And because they're making too much money, <laughs> they won't let her leave. <laughs> so it's like, damn it, she's just so lovely and innocent in this role. Yeah. A couple years later, she's in a Carpenter film. She's in Memoirs of an Invisible Man. She played Alice. A decent Carpenter movie plays the love interest to Chevy Chase. Good special effects in this. Awesome bad guy, Sam Neill. I will give him that. He's a great villain. Mm. Have you ever seen it, Case? I know you love Carpenter. I've never seen this, and I do like Carpenter. How does he do with some more, like, com- like with Chevy Chase being more of a comedic actor? It's definitely like a dark comedy, for sure. I mean, there's there's some funny moments in it, but it's it's revolves around Sam Neill, who plays like a government agent trying to track down Chevy Chase, who becomes invisible in it. So it's it's got like a kind of a they live type feel to it. Okay. Love they live. Oh, I love it. 93, she's in a remake, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. She plays Nancy, the 50-Foot Woman. It's not her only remake. She did a, a remake of Rear Window years later, too. The Last Supper in 93, a short, was her first directing role. And we'll see her do some other directing into the 2000s. But this is the first time she wrote and directed The Last Supper. Um, so dabbling with that, coming off a lot of successful acting roles there at the in the late 80s. My friends, like, I told them I was doing this podcast. I was, oh, dude, I didn't realize she directed The Last Supper. you got to watch that. So I pulled up The Last Supper, which is the the movie, like, with, like Bill Paxton and Aaron Diaz. <laughs> and I watched it, and I was like, that was fucking pretty good. <laughs> and then I was like, 
was like, that's not this at all. <laughs> and you realize that is not it, but it looks yeah. like a decent movie. Out of it. Oh, that's funny, man. I'm like, what did Daryl Hannah have to do with that? He goes, oh, she wrote and directed. I'm like, bullshit. Like, she's not even in it. He's like, oh, and then he looks, he's like, I swore I read that somewhere. And he looks it up, he goes, oh, my bad. It's a different one. <laughs> well, shout out to your friend for knowing that deep cut, man. She's in Grumpy Old Men, the first of two, as the character Melanie. The first Grumpy Old Men is awesome. Yeah. Not a fan of Grumpier? Not really. This one's this one's good, though. I think they were more grumpy in the first one. She plays one of their daughters, right? Yeah, she plays Jack Lemmon's daughter. Okay, yeah. that's what I thought. Just a supporting role, right? Yeah. I, I've got beef with this with these two movies. First of all, I'm going to go on record. I love them. They're hilarious. But what sucked about these is I was working at the movie theater at the time, and they had the gag reel at the end of the movie. And so nobody would leave the movie theater because they were watching them just screw up lines and the old guy from Rocky talking about bacon. And so people would stand there forever. And we couldn't clean the theater out. Burgess Meredith? Yeah, Burgess Meredith. We couldn't <laughs> clean the freaking theater because they're sitting in there. I remember the bacon thing. Yeah. This movie's probably close to your heart, Case, because it's a Minnesota movie. They go ice fishing. You know, that's just, sure. this is what you what this is what you grew up on, right? I know people that are from the town where this is filmed. The last movie for a final review is The Little Rascals. She plays Miss Crabtree, which is a small role in there. But if you've seen Little Rascals, you remember Miss Crabtree with being there for the whole pageant situation. So lowest critic score is a movie called The Tie That Binds. Now I'm going to do something a little bit different for this since it's my review. I want one of you to bring out your phone or your on your computer, and I want you to put a timer. And I want you to set it at 60 seconds. And if I spend more than 60 fucking seconds talking about this movie, you have to cut me off because it is so deserves its lowest critic score. And I don't want to dignify it with more than 60 seconds in conversation from my end. So you let me know. I'll tell you when I'm ready and click the button. Who's got the timer? I got it. All right. James, you ready? Yep. So this movie has an 832 split on Rotten Tomatoes, 8 for the critics, 32, 0%, I guess, technically would be the worst. But Daryl plays Leanne, a character who is on the run from the law with her husband, John. Their daughter, Janie, is at the center of the story. I don't remember much because I kind of drifted off about halfway through, and I was like, I'm just going to hate this movie more than anything. I'm not going to give an actual review of it. They put the gir- their daughter up for foster care. There's four other actors that I recognize. Ned Vaughn, the cop with the scar on his face who killed Winston in the movie Life. Carmen Argenziano, who played one of the main cops in Blue Streak. Chris Ellis from Armageddon and many other movies. And the late Willie Garson, rest in peace. Otherwise, it's a nobody party. Um, It's a stupid movie that Daryl should have never been a part of and should be embarrassed to be a member of. It's awful. Don't watch it. It's on YouTube if you're morbidly interested. 60. Man, nailed it. 60 seconds. That's what it's about. Nailed it. That is all. That was less than 60 seconds. That was good, Kyle. I did mess one thing up because I, I was speeding through it, but... Tough, you can't say it. Your 60 seconds is up. Nobody watched it, I assume. Negative. Yeah, don't waste your time. I like the Springsteen song, The Ties That Bind, but... It's The Tie either. That Binds. Very important distinction because I did the same thing. I looked up The Ties That Bind, oh. and I couldn't find shit on it. It's The Tie That Binds. Interesting. Very right. particular. Very particular. Daryl, you should be ashamed that you were ever in this. And I'm going to move on because there's no reason to spend any more time on it. Here's the wild part. We're at 1995. We've talked about maybe 20 movies. 69 of her 98 credits 
are all after 1995. And we've talked about pretty much all the good stuff outside of the Kill Bill stuff we're going to get into here. She's done a lot since 95 in those 26 years, but we're not going to talk about a lot of them. We're not going to talk about most of those 69 because most of them aren't worth mentioning. I did watch that one. It's got a good little cast. Dennis Hopper, Michael Madsen. How have I never heard of this movie? I love both of those guys. It's on Tubi. It's all right. Uh, Dennis Hopper plays kind of like a kind of a, like a weasel spineless character and it's just weird to see him in that kind of role my guess is that there was a lot of drugs passed around the set during that movie probably i mean that's her character she's a druggy porn star in that movie it's a different for her it's very different character than we've seen her play before up to this point but but with all this uh by 96 she was named by empire mag as the 96th sexiest star in film history she made the top 100 sexiest stars in entertainment by 95 but her first ever TV role wasn't until 1997 in the show Gun. She started acting in 78, so it took her almost 20 years to show up on a TV show. Interesting. She's in The Real Blonde in 97 and then takes on the Adams Family in a made-for-TV movie called Adams Family Reunion. She played Morticia. We covered Morticia with Angelica Houston and raved about her in that role several episodes back. Did anybody rewatch Adam's Family Reunion? And how do we compare Morticia, this version, versus that one? I guess this would be the, the Adam one ad, after Adam's Family Values, right? I think so. Yeah. There's only two of the actors that were all of the other ones. It was probably like Lurch and some other. And Cousin It. Whoever Cousin yeah. It. Well, cousin it, it, you don't even know who that yeah, is. So exactly. Been anybody. <laughs> it was the only two that signed on that had, were in all the movies. Yeah, I know that Tim Curry played, played Gomez, right? Which is yep. so... I mean, that casting's kind of brilliant because that guy's so creepy, but I didn't watch this. I'm glad I didn't because it sounds like it was a, obviously a direct-to-video. It's bad. Kind of similar to the, to the Home Alones, just like when a, movie, when a famous movie like that gets sent directly to video, you're like, you know it's going to be bad. The director said that he wanted Tim Curry because he didn't like the like, Latin sexual vibe that they brought on with... Raul Julia? Raul Julia. He was trying to get away from that to go for more like a creepy vibe with his character, which I respect. It just, it's pretty bad. So don't rewatch it. Angelica wins that bout. Let's put it that way. Uh, How about my favorite Martian? Lizzie. She plays Jeff Daniels' love interest in this one. Anybody rewatch my favorite Martian? I didn't, but this is her, the largest budget movie she was a part of. Watch it. 65 million. Wow. What a waste. And for Christopher Lloyd's antics. It only world grows 37 million. So it, it, it lost quite a bit of money. 18 bucks. Yeah. Oh, I remember this movie. Jeff Daniels. Yeah, I remember this movie. Yeah, there's not much to, to her character. She turns into an alien at one point in the movie, but you know, she's done that before. In a, she's changed body types in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. So I guess she's, she's been there. So she's been an alien. She's been a giantess. Yeah. She's been a mermaid. She's, you know, doing all the sci-fi things. I love it. She's also an android, you know, that has a lifespan of four years. There you go. And then 99, she executive produces Wildflowers and also plays a role in that. And then we hit the Willennium 2000 in a TV movie that I, I kind of enjoyed, and I think Dame likes it too, based on the texting we had. Hide and Seek, she plays Anne, a role that actually requires a She had to put in some work as someone who's kidnapped in this movie. Oh, that one blew my mind, man. The cast, I know that you and I differ on our 
Jennifer Tilly. Dude, she's so annoying in that movie, man. Her voice just shreds my earballs. Her character gets kidnapped and uh, is trying to find all the ways she can to get away um, because this couple can't have kids. All right, 2000, Dancing at the Blue Iguana. She plays a stripper named Angel, a movie that I watched and didn't learn until after that it was almost completely improvised. What? Yeah, the, the way the director works, he pretty much does everything improvisation. Did anybody watch this? And do you know about her character as a stripper and her shtick? I got about 10 minutes in and I was bored to death, so I turned it <laughs> off. So uh, another Jennifer Tilly movie, Sandra O'Day is in this as well. She plays a fucking idiot stripper, like completely done. The example I'll give you is one of the other female characters finds finds out she's pregnant. I'm pretty sure she's raped and she's pregnant and she drops the pregnancy stick in the bathroom. Daryl Hannah picks up the pregnancy stick and then thinks she's pregnant and then goes around pretending that she's pregnant. That's how dumb the character is. And the fact that she improvised that, I'm just like, what are you doing? Wow. Sounds like my story. <laughs> Another one. Another example of the Dame story here. Son of a bitch. You guys have a lot of parallels, Dames. You and uh, Daryl Hannah. Son of a bitch. All right, this is an important movie for her, though. One, because she does a documentary a couple of years later called Strip Notes. She directs, does the cinematography, and edits it, and it's all about making of this movie. So she's putting in some other work outside of just acting. But also, the director of this movie brought her on to do a play on the London's West End. Um, she had never done theater before because she's super shy. Yeah. And she didn't think she was able to do it. But he's like, I'm going to bring you in. You're going to do this. And then she was. She talked about, like, you can't see the crowd. It's dark. So she felt a little bit more comfortable about doing it. But that led to some other opportunities, too, which we'll talk about here in a second. So Dancing in the Blue Iguana is an important moment for her career, getting into the, the rest of the 2000s. Like I mentioned, The Seven-Year Itch, she reprises Marilyn Monroe's role in that play. So that's a big deal in the London West End. That's basically the Broadway over there. Yeah. So Quentin Tarantino came out to watch her perform one night, flew out to watch her perform. And because of her performance, he then told her, I'm going to write you a part in my upcoming movie, Kill Bill. No shit. And Kill Bill too. Interesting. Dancing in the Blue Iguana led her to go to perform on the London's West End, and which led her to Quentin Tarantino, which led her to Kill Bill. Couldn't have just watched Splash? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was watching Australian exploitation films. He's, he's too busy. Be watching Disney films. Come on, Quentin. That's really interesting, though. Uh huh. 2001, she does Hard Cash with Val Kilmer, Christian Slater, and others, Bokeem Woodbine. And she falls for Val Kilmer and starts dating Val Kilmer in 2001. So Jackson Brown, Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. And we'll got another have, doozy coming up, too. We got a big one coming. Also known as yeah. Dieter von Kuntz. <laughs> Dieter von Kuntz. <laughs> Dieter von Kuntz. <laughs> Also, uh, yeah. Val, Val Kilmer wrote in his, his autobiography that this was the lost relationship that hurt him the most. Wow. Losing on and Daryl Hannah. This was his biggest heartbreak. Oh, I thought you meant the movie Hard Cash. No, no, the movie oh, okay. is. I started, couldn't finish it. <laughs> Theme. Same. A Walk to Remember, O2. She plays Cynthia, smaller role in that one. Frasier, she makes an appearance in O2. She's in North Fork, O3. She performs a coat hanger abortion in the movie The Job in 2003. <laughs> Dame saw this. I know that. What a fucking weird movie that was, dude. <laughs> She's a female assassin, a female action star. 
That's not a Tarantino movie? It's not. Like her emotions were like, I want a relationship, I don't want a relationship, I want a baby, don't want a baby. What the fuck, dude? She's a contract killer who wasn't doing her job. Is this her first role as in like an action movie? I, maybe. I mean, this is the point in time where she starts to do a lot of smaller stuff that we're not even going to mention, so she might have done something. This is a smaller movie. I just watched it because Dames was like, there's an, a self-administered abortion in this movie, and it's bonkers. So I was like, all right, well, I'll watch that. And that was enough to get you involved. All right. Let's Let me it. cue it up. <laughs> I, I will tell you this, that of all, all the movies I watched, none of her roles were anything remotely close to this. This is a complete step in the in a different direction for her. Completely speculative here. I wonder if she did a movie like this to try to hone her skills a little bit so she would be more prepared for the Tarantino project we have coming up. It's possible. It's possible. That's a good speculation. When a well-established band comes out with a self-titled album, they're almost trying to reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. They're kind of telling you. I like that. It's a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting movie. I don't know if it's good, and she doesn't have a huge role in it, but she plays Stella in The Big Empty that same year, a movie with Jon Favreau, Sean Bean, Kelsey Grammer, Rachel Lee Cook, about aliens and cowboys. It's a really bizarre movie. Very odd. Jon Favreau's the lead in that one, and Rachel Lee Cook. It's worth checking out. Yeah, I liked it. It was weird, man. Not wrong, but it's fantastic. I'll just say that. Big fan of that one. Check it out. It's available on Tubi. And then the kind of the the her biggest I would say her biggest role to date. Yeah. She plays L Driver in Kill Bill Volume One and then Kill Bill Volume Two the, the second year. Um, she got a Saturn win for the first Kill Bill. I, I would say that I think her her character has more prominence in the second one. Personally, yeah, I prefer I agree. the second movie. I would agree with that. Total badass, though. I mean, and it was fun to see her in this role. She's fantastic in this, for sure. Great casting on Tarantino's part. That scene where she meets her demise in Kill Bill 2, she Dude. she sells the fact that she is mm-hmm. fatally wounded. It was really, really impressive. That's uh, probably her most impressive scene of anything I've seen, when she's flailing around and screaming while other things are happening at the forefront of the scene, but she's still full sell. Absolutely agree. She's, like, legitimately scary in this role. Just, like, she is totally just a... Yeah. Totally just a... Badass. Evil fucking woman in this scene. Total badass, man. Who are the other... Who are the other Luma, assassins Luma Thurman? Luma Thurman. No, oh. the, the other assassins in it. Uh, oh, uh, Lucy, Fox. Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu and Vivica A. Fox. Yeah, I think she's Daryl Hannah is definitely the scariest and just like the creepiest of them all for sure. She's the final assassin that Uma Thurman has to kill. Mm-hmm. She's the last chapter before um, she meets Bill. As we get into the mid 2000s, it's a lot of stuff off screen for her. She starts to get pretty politically active and is not afraid to get arrested. So <laughs> first, she creates a couple board games, Love It or Hate It and Library with Hillary Shepard Turner in 05. First of all, that's fucking awesome that she created board games that's so cool two board games that's cool yeah. two board games even better yeah she must have been bored <laughs> oh god he did it he went there but her arrests begin with her arrest for confronting the bulldozing of an urban farm in 06 in 09 she was arrested for protesting mountaintop removal and then in 2011 she was arrested outside of the white house for pro- protesting the keystone pipeline so over a five-year span 
willing to stand up for her beliefs and get arrested in the process. So it's funny. Like I, I actually, you know, I, I know Daryl Hannah from the eighties and nineties, but, and we mentioned how her career, you know, she hasn't really been in much since like the turn of the century, but she's been in a lot, just nothing good. She's been in a lot. And I, I thought, I thought that she kind of like, except for kill bill, I had always assumed that she kind of just gave up acting and like focus on the politically, yeah, uh, the political activism stuff. But I guess I was way wrong because she's still doing stuff. She's just she's making headlines not for her acting but for her political stuff. A lot of B movies. Yeah, she's doing during this time. Because I knew she, had, I knew she had been arrested at like Native American protests and the environmental stuff and all that stuff. But I didn't, I didn't know she was actually still actively acting. Didn't we have another actress that we covered that kind of? Did the same thing, except she got out of, she really got out of acting and went and like opened a farm or something. Renee uh, Russo? Renee Russo. Yeah, 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 yeah. She kind of disappeared until until Nightcrawler, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, she only has like 30 credits on her resume for a career. She's like the, other than Chris Tucker, she was the least busy person we've ever covered. Yeah. I, I also read that she was one of the people that confronted Harvey Weinstein and along with a lot of her political activism, I don't, it's hard to say why she stopped getting cast in a lot of big projects and big roles. I'm, I don't know what you guys learned along the way. No, I'm fascinated by both her rise and her fall from roles. Prominence, yeah. Well, and Kill Bill would have been Weinstein-produced movies, so... You would think, like, Kill Bill would have been the Renaissance, the revival. Kind of like Travolta, yeah. Yeah, but not really. I mean, she's busy. She does a lot of stuff. I'm sure she paid the bills, but not prominent. It's not going to pay the bills on the Munson meter here shortly for me. Mm. Put it that way, um, she e- executive produced Vice in 08, so in between that and the acts and a lot of other smaller stuff during that time. 2012, zooming ahead, she's the executive producer behind Gritty Line Bastards. I listened to an interview with her on the radio show. I listened to the Bennington show, and it shocked me. This movie was a feature length documentary, and it was released in 30 cities. That doesn't maybe seem like a lot, but I'll, I'll give you a frame of reference. An Inconvenient Truth, another uh, environmental-based documentary, only opened in 12 theaters. For this movie to be released in 30 theaters coming out of the gate, that's a really impressive number for a documentary. I've never seen it. But it's a political documentary, so it aligns quite well with a lot of her other activism that she's doing. She's walking the walk. She is, and her biggest thing is the environment. Mm-hmm. She's involved in as much as she can, and she's using money and fame and everything she can, and, and I respect that a great deal. One of the movies in the past 10 years that I didn't absolutely hate was The Hot Flashes. I did watch that with, with her. She It's a basketball movie. She plays a closet lesbian in that one. A very young Emma Roberts in that as well. It was okay. Yeah. I didn't hate it. There are much worse movies that I watched than The Hot Flashes. And it was like, what, uh, what's her face? Um, Brooke Shields. Does all the crank anchors. Well, Brooke Shields is in it. Um, Wanda Sykes is in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Wanda. I love Wanda. I like her humor whenever she's in stuff. It's, it's a funny yeah. movie, and it's, uh, again, super short. It's on Tubi. Kyle, to your point, I, I didn't love this movie, but I did enjoy seeing this ensemble cast of prominent female actresses working together. And it's a fun movie. 2013, she revealed in the interview with Dan Rather that she had a lifelong battle with Asperger's, which I'm guessing also played a role in her getting casted in a lot of places because, you know, when you're dealing with Asperger's and you're on the spectrum like this, 
you're, you're just not socializing the same way that other actors and actresses are at parties, at the awards stuff, like in between, you know, and that it's all relationships in that business. So if you're not spending the time outside of just filming to build those relationships, it's probably tough, probably really challenging. Yeah. Good for her. Pretty impressive career, though, that that she's been able to put together despite because you you'd have to imagine that that would affect her confidence. Like you, we talked about, she's shy and she's got body issues. And for her to be able to, you know, work through those things and have such a prominent career, it's impressive. I'm going to guess that's also a huge reason why she didn't do more TV throughout her career, too. Yeah. You know, like going back to the set every single day to do, especially not in front of a live audience, like a sitcom, that would have that probably would have been well beyond her comfort level. And go back to your point earlier about the uh, seven-year itch. That makes that even more impressive that she was mm-hmm. she got on stage and, mm-hmm. and did a stage production. But a little bit more TV, 2013-14, she's in two episodes of Hawaii Five O. She starts dating Neil Young, so that's the other big name. Married him in 2018. So let's just frame this. How cool must she be if she's dated Jackson Brown, Val Kilmer, and is now married to Neil Young? She must be cool to hang out with. She directed and wrote Paradox with Neil Young. Dreamlike live concert movie. Well, to kind of round it out here, the only recurring television role she's ever had in her career was on a show called Sense8. It's on Netflix. Both seasons of that, 24 episodes. Started it. I couldn't get into it, but I know people really like the show. But that's her only recurring role she's ever done in television throughout her career, which is wild. We don't normally see that with most of the actors we cover. But then just kind of round it out, directs a, a documentary called Mountaintop in 2019 and is in something most recently, Pass the Safe Act Now, which uh, again, lines with her political activism and a lot of other small stuff throughout there that are range from probably two to five stars on IMDb, anywhere in there. So if you if you want to dig in it, her, she has so much stuff on Tubi. There were probably another 12 to 14 things I didn't get a chance to watch, but I was like, I can't do anymore. I'm done. Like, I gotta start watching other stuff. (laughs) The one that broke my back was Storm Seekers. I was like, oh, maybe this is like an alternative version of Twister. I'll watch this. You wished. And holy fuck, man. It was, I gave it like a two. It was so bad. I was like, I can't do any more of these. I'm done. (laughs) We didn't talk about Zombie Night, and I texted you guys earlier. Zombie Night felt like a feature-length movie version of the Geico commercial where they're in the, where they're all making bad decisions like they do in slasher movies. (laughs) <laughs> my favorite part is why can't we just get in the running car and the guy looks like are you crazy and then the other goes let's go hang out by the let's go hide by the chainsaws oh good idea like get that's what cemetery. zombie night felt like no well, just just to be fair <laughs> going to a bunch of chainsaws is not a terrible idea not engaging the fucking chainsaws yeah if you're gonna use problem. them if you're gonna use them it's a good idea that's true yeah, it seemed like one of those. It was one of the ones I was going to throw on my list. But I was like, no, Storm, after Storm Seekers, it broke, it broke my, my spirit and my will. I usually have pretty high tolerance for shit on this podcast. Hey, but if there's a passionate fan of Daryl Hannah's career, they better appreciate the fact that one of us watched Storm Chasers or Seekers, <laughs> whatever it's called, and the other one of us watched Zombie Night. That's true. Hey, I'm glad I found gems like The Big Empty. I really liked The Big Empty. I thought it was super cool and super weird, and I would have never watched that. Or The Final Terror. I like The Final Terror. Yeah. All right, let's get into top performances, Rigby. Let's see what you got. So I got a user-submitted list from IMDb. It's from... From Daryl Hanna. Caspian, 1978. So <laughs> <laughs> it's actually from... Uh, the list is from 2014, but I think that's 
not really <laughs> that big a deal since we, as we mentioned, her big roles are obviously from the eighties and nineties. So uh, this is bullshit. Storm Seekers isn't going to be on there. So it would have been hilarious if it was from Twitter user DH Love Life. <laughs> Daryl Hannah Love Life. Oh my god. <laughs> Here's my hint. It only includes one Kill Bill on. Oh. And how many roles? Ten. Ten. And it's just Ten. film roles. Just film. Oh, there's not much TV to pick from. So, James, what do you got? Best role? Give you a first stab. Yep. I'm going to try to populate this list of 10. Flash, dude. Come on. You have to. Yeah, yeah that's number three. Whoa. Number three? Yeah. I'm going to guess Kill Bill 2 is the one on there, not one. Yep, that's number two. It's just a fucking fanboy. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. 2014 fucking fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> number one is wall street on there is wall street on there i don't think it will be wall street's not wow yeah Razzie, you don't put a Razzie not winning role on there come on did we talk about all the roles we talked about eight of them i believe okay. steel magnolias has to be on there that is number one okay that makes sense okay give me blade runner yep five legal eagles uh nope oh man i'm i'm feeling clan of the cave bear Nope. Oh, wow. It's not great when you can't, when we're struggling to name movies that could be on the top. Silver City. Nope. Hope of Greenwich Village has to be on there. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. Oh. Whoa. Final Terror? No, that can't be on there. Crazy people. Think of another 80s movie where she's the love interest. Reckless. Nope. (laughs) I was going to say, it better not. Oh, Roxanne. Roxanne. It's got to be Roxanne. Oh, yeah, Roxanne. Yeah, okay. Uh, Grumpy Old Men, did that make it? Nope. What are we missing? What numbers? Six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Oh man! Wow. Uh, all right, my favorite Martian. <sighs> nope. Fucking a. Just because of career relevance, Blue Iguana. Nope. Yeah, I was about to say that next. Craig, one of our one of your favorite directors has a movie on here. Oh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yes. Okay. That's number seven. So we need six, eight, nine, and ten. Holy. Shit. And I don't think we talked about nine and ten. So there's my hint. Six and eight. All right, so we got to get six and eight. Hot flashes. Nope. Damn it. North Folk. Nope. Fuck, man. Uh, hide and seek. Nope. One's a remake oh. of a movie from the 50s. Rear Window. Uh, is it Rear Window? Yep. Rear Window was okay. Interestingly enough, the other one is a remake, I believe, from the 50s as well. So it's Attack of the 50-Foot Woman? Yep. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. All right, yep. so what are the two we didn't mention? You didn't say Summer Lovers. Number six and number ten is at play in the in the fields of the Lord. Yeah, it's with John Lithgow, Tom and Tom Berenger. Yep, yep. That movie, you guys had a thirty-six million dollar budget, and it world grossed one point three million. It sounds very very boring, so I'm not surprised by that at all. It lost almost thirty-five million dollars. <laughs> wow. Yeah, dude, that's quite a list. I probably would have put. Last Supper in there somewhere if she would have been asked. <laughs> I believe that's what you call a list of bomberos, baby. So thank you, Caspian, 1978. Good list. So with the top three to run through it again, we're what? Splash, Kill Bill 2, Steel Magnolias. I'm a little surprised at the lack of respect she gets for Wall Street. Me too. I said that earlier. It's disrespect at this point. I hear you. The Razzie. All right, so Munson Meter, um, the way this works, we rate every actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, their range as an actor, awards footprint, other talents they might have, personal life, comedy chops, uh, box office 
success or lack thereof in anything else that matters to us as Munson. So we're going to start this time with Rigby. She's got an interesting career. We talked about her, her stardom in the 80s and 90s. Arguably one of the one of the biggest sort of female leads in just you know notable movies from the 80s and 90s that I think mm-hmm. makes her career even more interesting because, as I mentioned, I always thought that her sort of disappearing from the radar was more because she just kind of got disenchanted with acting and wanted to focus more on politics. Apparently that wasn't the case. So had that been the case, I think she would have got a higher score. You know, obviously she's got name recognition. People know who she is. That doesn't really make up for the fact that she's been in a lot of stinkers in the last 20 years, unfortunately. So she'd get a higher score for me if her career was a little bit more balanced. But all that being said, I'm going to give her a 79. I mean, a 79 for you is that's a pretty good score. Really. A respectable score. Dude, yeah. She's been in like, I mean, Wall Street's one of my top 10 favorite movies ever. So she yeah. gets credit from there. And I don't think her performance was worthy of a Razzie for, by any means. <laughs> I agree 100%. Yeah, I think she and Kill Bill, she kicks ass like and those that's not in one but two movies. So, yeah, she gets she gets eye marks for me. All right. So here's my review. That number 44, 48 hangs low for box office as I give this review. I think it gives good context to where I'm going with this. I'd only seen five things of hers before this. Everything I watch, I review in IMDb, I'd only seen five things before this. So this was interesting for me to kind of dig into all this stuff. The movies I enjoyed her in were Splash, Roxanne, Blue Iguana, Hide and Seek, Kill Bill, Steel Magnolias. That's it. The rest, I felt like she was a below average subpar actor or were in movies that I could not stand. So there's like a handful of movies I, I could actually bear with her. And I didn't put Final Terror on there, and I, I'd put Final Terror on there. So maybe seven total. Limited awards. The only award she does have, Razzie win and a Razzie nom. So that kills her in my scoring. Because she doesn't even have like Emmy, Golden Globe, nothing. Right? Like there's, there's nothing on that radar there. I'd love that she's a major environmental activist and one of the Weinstein whistleblowers. Right. And she clearly backs up what she believes in. But when I when I was looking at the other actors I scored and when I look at just the complete lack of longevity from 94 on not taking Kill Bill into account, like a huge hit there. So I'm going to give her actually one of my lowest scores of anyone we've covered. Her work in the 80s and early 90s only takes her so far from me. I'm only going to give her a 53. And that sounds like shit compared to Rigby 79. Yeah, but. I was like, the only person I've rated lower than her is Chris O'Dowd. Interesting. Yeah, I just did not like most of her work, and I don't find her to be a very charismatic actress, and I don't... All right, Dames, our guest Munson, you're up. I'll... I kind of agree with you, buddy. I think she's not a great <laughs> actor. She's not a great actor at all. We've landed some roles. I, I, I wish we did know how she got on the radar of people as an actress. If you star in anything with Tom Hanks as the as the leading lady from that point on in your career, you're going to be known. I mean, that that's true all the way back until and in, in, to the eighties. Yeah. So factoring all that in, she her politics are cool as hell. I love what she stands for as a human being. Um, that brought my score up from a 53. She's a 69 dude. <laughs> that's a perfectly fair score. Case you're up. I definitely recognize her name and, and could pick her out on the screen at any point. I don't associate like she's not the driving force, but in any movies that that I'm that I watch, I think she's got a fascinating backstory and and all the things that she's done in her career away from the industry. 
She's dated and is married to a rock star and famous actors and people that have that level of fame have a lot of choices on who they're going to date and who they're going to marry. She's obviously got to be pretty cool. And like you said, Dames, once you do well in a role alongside Tom Hanks, that you carry that. I know Ron Howard spoke very highly of her in, in different articles. And so she's obviously popular in the industry. I just wish we had some insight as to why she fell off the radar as well. You look at her filmography, it's, in, it's an interesting rise to stardom, and it's an interesting fade into obscurity. Her range is, is a little repetitive to me as the naive, sweet, charming, and beautiful love interest in movies, and, and it just it gets a little old. I mean, I think my favorite role of hers is Elle in Kill Bill. When I saw her on the screen for the first time, I was like, holy shit, that's Daryl Hannah, and she is a complete badass. And I just did not see that coming. Daryl Hannah, for me, is going to get a score of 62. James, why don't you round us out? Kyle, what you mentioned is movies that you like of hers. I also like those exact movies. However, I don't like her in them. I think she added almost nothing to Splash. I felt like in Splash, it was she didn't talk for like the first half of the movie. And then the second half of the movie, it was like, hey, I can talk. And that was pretty much it for her. Like, it, I thought... I actually don't know if I, I, I think I liked Splash. It was silly, kind of stupid, but funny. I thought John Candy was great. Um, Tom Hanks was great. Uh, in Kill Bill, I love Kill Bill. I love both of them. And it's just so hard to judge someone in a Tarantino movie when he specifically picks them out to play this campy cartoon of themselves. Yeah. Because he doesn't ask them to do anything other than that. And so, you know, Michael Madsen's in every movie playing the exact same character and but i like tarantino movies so like i as much as i want to be a hater i can't i thought she was awesome in that i love the fight scenes the violence is unbelievable and then roxanne another kind of nothing role but a popular movie all the things i learned about her that i liked about her had nothing to do with acting and everything to do with her political activism her overcoming a uh, learning a severe learning disability her being so outspoken about Harvey Weinstein I, I read an article that she attributes her career slowing down to her being one of the first people to speak out against Harvey and he had so much pull that she was one of the first people who was kind of negatively impacted by that where he kind of blackballed her before you know the other 50 women came out and said he was a monster so I don't know if that is true that uh, he blackballed her career but i know it is true that he's a huge piece of shit so i wouldn't put it past him i just not a big fan all that a long-winded kind of add rant i'm gonna give her a 53 i'm gonna make a quick amendment to my score because james made a good point that a large reason why she's in so many stinkers after 2000 or so is probably because she stood up to harvey weinstein and that affected her role choice and ability to take good roles. So I will increase my score to a 57. So I'll give her a four-point bump. But I'm not going to go any higher than that. Because I think contextually, she kind of murdered her own career by doing that. But it, she did the right thing, and I'm glad she did it. So with that, Daryl Hannah comes in at a 64 on the dot. Clean 64.00, which puts her tied for 35th with Regina Hall. And that's sandwiched between Seth Green and Dakota Fanning. She's higher than Dakota Fanning? 
by the ever slightest margin of 0.17. Wow. Overscored is my initial thought here. It's because of me, you assholes. Yeah, you're 79. Because you guys gave her way low of a score. If she wasn't in Wall Street, she would have gotten a lower score. But I just love that movie. I've always loved it. You're allowed to have biases. I have a problem with your score at all, bro. Yeah. Man, stand by that score, dude. Yeah. I gave Jamie Lee Curtis 178 last week. <laughs> she's only had a couple things coming. She's in a project that is completed called The American Connection and a movie that's in post-production called The Now. Those are probably both my story, too. <laughs> the Dame's story starring Daryl Anna. Let's see. We got Reckless. We got Splash. We got... Kill Bill, what else? Blue Iguana. Blue Iguana. Blue Iguana. The American Connection has no plot currently. Oh, it's definitely my story. <laughs> the Now is a miniseries, and it says a man decides to turn his life around after learning that he is the third member of his immediate family to be suicidal. Our next podcast is going to hit on November 18th, and our featured guest is the one and only John Rigby, the other half of the Rigby Twindom making his third appearance on the pod, making making his return here. The actors that we the wheel was considering for this particular episode was William Forsyth, Sigourney Weaver, Tom Wilkinson, Laura Linney, and Frank Langella. What do we like? What do we hate? Really good list. Great list. Mm. I like Linney, I like Langella, and Wilkinson out of that the most. But you can't really go wrong with... I know... William Forsyth, I think of him most as the detective in Deuce Bigelow who pulls down his pants and wants him to look at his dick. What do you think of this? That and Blue Streak, the other one I think What do you think of this? Yeah. It's not small. It's actually pretty long. It's just a thin. I got a thin dick. How many times can Hollywood tell my story, you guys? Beat it to death. That's what they're going to do. But all, in all seriousness, all those, I mean, Laura Linney's, you know, uh, Give me Truman Show and all those. Yeah, Linney's the best. But I love Tom Wilkinson, too. Michael Clayton in the bedroom. A fantastic actor. Rush Hour. Plus Sigourney Weaver's. Sigourney Weaver would be badass. A legend in, in her own right as well. I think those two are my favorite of the list. I think if, if I had to pick one on here, I'd go with Frank Langella because I've liked him in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in. And I feel like I would like even more. Of his stuff, if I watch Doug Deep, yeah, absolutely. He just seems like a really crotchety old man who's angry all the time. I want you guys to do Laura Linney, so you guys will all watch. You can count on me because I know that none of you have seen it. Is it any good, or is that like a my third favorite movie of all time? Really? Oh, yeah. wow, that's pretty ringing endorsement. Mark Ruffalo, 85, 85 Metascore. That's fucking wild. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Number three. Interesting. I don't even know if I've ever heard of it. It's a Lonergan movie, right? The guy who did it is, dude. Manchester yeah, by the sea. Very good. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Never uh-huh. seen it, but so you yeah. so you'd pick Lenny. That that'd be your choice. Damn. Oh yeah, okay. easily. Kenneth Lonergan's only done like four movies, and that's one of them, right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Forsyth would be the supporting actor of the bunch. I don't think the prestige would be nearly as high as the other four, but you can't miss with the other four. I think all of them are good. If we do Forsyth, then the end the end quote kind of writes itself. What do you yeah. think of this? that's one problem we can solve well regardless we don't choose the wheel decides and we'll see where it goes all right so dames we appreciate i know we did this during a seahawks game so that had to be conflicting a lot of ways so that like major sacrifice for you to be here and we did it without james for the most part and that's painful and excruciating as well so like there was a lot of sacrifice here we appreciate you being here those are my boys (laughs) 
James, James, it was great to learn a lot about your life tonight. I really appreciate you sharing all that. I mean, yeah, anybody that needs to know anything about my life, just watch a couple Daryl Hannah movies. I didn't. Uh, yeah, you end you end each day rolling off in the sunset to roll me away by Seeger, right? What a song! Hell yeah! What a song! What a way to finish a movie. Lex has got it queued up for me right now. <laughs> Any plugs you want to make for the show for our listeners? Just tune into Project Nerd for CF3 and stay tuned for the Dames Marv show in 2022 because you guys will all play yourselves on it, I'm sure. Let's do it. That's badass, man. I'm looking forward to that. Me too, man. That's awesome. All right. Well, as we wrap up, um, as always, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can catch us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. Shoot us an email if you feel so, uh, feel that desire at Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Daryl Hannah? The biggest R I feel is regret that maybe the greatest warrior I have ever met met her end at the hands of a bushwhacking, scrub, elky piece of shit like you. (laughs) Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?